0: Hello, Bat Chat listeners. Uh, It's Matt and Will here. Uh, Before we get into this week's normal episode, we felt like we needed to break in and talk about some of the news this week because it has been a hell of a week. Before we even get into the the deepest, most bat-relevant news, uh, we should also addressed the passing of two important comic book artists, both of whom had done bat work. Kevin O'Neill, probably best known as the co-creator of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with Alan Moore, passed away this week, uh, who did a couple of weird, surreal, post-crisis Batmite stories with Alan Grant, Uh, One an issue of Legends of the Dark Knight, and one as a one-shot prestige format called Mightfall. It it was all very tongue-in-cheek and very weird, and someday we will get to those, probably, when we do a Batmite episode. Note to self, come up with a Batmite episode. Uh, The other artist was Carlos Pacheco, who did a little bit of everything. I first encountered him... On what was my first issue of The Flash, the second appearance of Bart Allen, Impulse, uh, where he took over the book from Mike Waringo for a few issues and did, as bat books go, not only uh, a JLA, JSA, OGN, where Bruce has a good part, but an arc on the Jeff Loeb penned uh, Superman Batman series. And of course, our thoughts go out to their friends and family. But if we're talking about the passing of people who are connected to Batman, the thing that made us have to do a little talk before this episode is the passing of... I I don't think, Will, you can argue with me on this one at least too much, on the actor to most... Embody the Dark Knight, even though his body only played Batman in one place. Uh, Kevin
1: Conroy. We can certainly quibble about on-screen portrayals of Batman and Bruce Wayne, but there is just one voice, and everyone you talk to—fans, creators—everyone says, "I read those Batman comics in his voice." What? What a signature artist! What a, a singular talent! and what an amazing loss.
0: I mean Conroy has been voicing Batman for a little over 30 years. More of, I'm sure if you count, you know, when Batman the animated series went into production, but it was released, the first episode was released 30 years ago in September. Conroy has voiced Batman in animated series, in video games, in animated movies. There is not an aspect of the character that Conroy has not touched. He wrote a story for this past year's DC Pride one-shot that is available now for free on DC Universe Infinite. And if you have not read it, go and read that story. It's touching. And he did play Bruce Wayne on screen in an episode of Batwoman from the first season. So there was one time where he got to physically embody Batman.
1: Can you imagine
0: what it must be like to have experienced the character for so long? I met Conroy once at uh wizard world Philly back before the Dark Times, it was probably 20, 2018 or 2019. I can't remember. I was there with friend of the show, Patreon backer, Dan Groth, And Dan and I had gotten online because I, I, I'm I usually don't pay for autographs. But for Kevin Conroy, it was like, no, nope, I will pay for that autograph. And I had my DVD of Mask of the Phantasm. And I watched him and he, you know, he he didn't take long because of everyone at that con, he had the biggest line. Of course. And, of course. And I mean, and I mean, there were great. It was great. I mean, Phil Lamar was there. Uh, the legends, Maurice Lamarche and Rob Paulson, Pinky and the Brain, were there set up next to each other. Uh, Dan and I got to, you know, sit around and talk to each of them like as a group for a good like 10, 15 minutes, and we had a great time. But, you know, you only got like a minute or two with Conroy. But one thing I say, he took a little bit longer with the kids. I saw him, you know, really chat with them, And, you know, he was just very gracious when I talked to him, talked about how much, you know, his performance meant to me, how he is the Batman that I hear in my head. And he signed, you know, he signed the DVD of Kevin Conroy and then Batman underneath it. And at some point, when we're, I think when we were online for Paulson and LaMarche, you do hear, you know, the line just go quiet for a second. You hear, I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. And the applause. Oh, God, the applause. He was a genuinely good person. And... He loved this role. I've read so many tributes, you know, from his fellow actors. Uh, There was one from a podcaster who did his Batman the Animated Series podcast. Uh, That was just, that was wonderful. Nobody had a bad thing to say about Kevin Conroy.
1: And that's, that's rare in Hollywood. Let's be fair, that's real rare. That was one of the thoughts that, that that really has been bouncing around my brain trying to think of what I was going to say today. I experienced this most through my Star Trek fandom, but William Shatner is a confirmed asshole, especially on Twitter. And his fellow castmates uh, have said that for years, that he is an irredeemable ass. And yet he's still kicking around. James Dewan, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly all people for one degree or another who were g- genuinely nice people. I, I c- personally consider James doing to be a hero uh, for what he did during world war II. Michelle um, Nichols. Absolutely. Thank you for that important uh, omission. And yet Shatner is the one who is still standing and still being an irredeemable asshole. Conroy is another guy uh, like all the creators that we've talked about and eulogized on this show who, just nobody had anything bad to say about and uh that's it's truly sad when you lose someone who is a good person who was kind and decent to everyone in their public life and yet we'll keep doing these problematic greater watches because those guys still kicking around
0: we will be doing a kevin conroy spotlight for our patreon bonus episode this month This is not me pitching like, hey, this great guy died. Join us on Patreon to hear us talk more about him. Uh, I'm sure our Patreon backers will understand. They will get to listen to that first. But at some point in the new year, at a time of appropriate tribute, I think we will also drop that wide. Because he's Kevin Conroy and he deserves as much praise and as much talk about the work he did on Batman as anyone can i mean you think about it and it's not just that he voiced batman when you look at other projects uh, i was just saying a will off air and for that episode in an episode of the batman he voiced john grayson dick grayson's father in an episode of brave and the bold he was the phantom stranger and in another episode, he was the Batman of Zurenar, the, the original one, not the psychotic alternate personality, the alien one. But it's just, it's fascinating that he wasn't a voice actor before Batman. This was what got him to be a voice actor. And he is associated with Batman. He is associated with Batman probably more than Anyone outside of Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And Gotham is quieter tonight. Rest in peace, Kevin Conroy. Your work as the Dark Knight will be missed. And now on to our normal silliness. Uh, I I do think it's nice that this week we happened to do an epi- an issue of Batman Adventures. With an animated series set. Story. It was a coincidence, but hey, you can't escape that version of Batman, and you can't escape the man who defined it. I am Vengeance.
1: Tonight,
0: i am. matt lazowitz and welcome to this week's episode of bat chat with matt and will a batman ranking podcast where each week my co-host will nevin and i dig into three batman stories discuss them and rank them on our big board that's creating a giant list of batman stories from best to worst will what's going on
1: i got two questions for you because as the good people listen to this we are in the past It's uh, a few days before Halloween. Number one, what's your favorite Halloween candy? And two, because of what we're covering tonight, have you ever been in a dirt clod fight before?
0: Number two, first, not a dirt clod fight. I know for a fact that my younger brothers at one point or another hucked mud at me, but that was just sort of, you know, down by the little... Stream in the town, Crick. It was a Jersey. It was a stream. We're not, this isn't Pennsylvania. <laughs> Pennsylvania, it's a Crick. Jersey, it was a stream. And, you know, just that, like the little stream that ran through the parks in the center of town. And, and they were, you know, messing around. And I'm sure I said something about, you know, because I'm watching, it was like, don't do that. And one of them hucked mud at me because, you know, I'm a big
1: bully who didn't want them to get soaked. I, I could say that I've, I remember distinctly being at least in at least one Dirt clod fight and it ends as they all do, somebody throws a rock.
0: Yeah, it's like a snowball fight until somebody makes the ice ball. Yeah. As for favorite Halloween candy, that is a challenging question because do you go with something very specifically Halloween-y? Do you go with your favorite candy bar in the micro size? And then of course there's the houses that give out the full size candy bars that are few and far between.
1: Oh, the fucking richers. Look at them.
0: Yeah. I know I would always look forward to the little mini Nestle's crunch. I love a good, you know, the, the rice, the, the crunchiness. It's a good, it's a good
1: candy bar.
0: And it was one I always looked forward to getting in my bag of treats.
1: I like the the texture there. The same reason I write the uh crackle and Mr. Good Bar. Yes. Almost the same. A- at least the uh, the crackle. Mr. Goodbar, similar texture. I'm going to stick up for a much maligned Halloween candy. Mary Janes. Oh. Everybody likes to shit on those. But I think they're great. Dirt Cloud Fight is a- an important
0: topic because tonight we are discussing three stories starring Clayface or Clayface's. Because there are a lot of them. And we're starting with the story with the most of them. Oh, no. This is The Mud Pack. Detective Comics, Volume 1, Number 604-607. to The writer is Alan Grant. Pencils by Norm Brayfogle. Inks by Steve Mitchell. Colors by Adrian Roy. Letters by Todd Klein. And edited by Denny O'Neill and Dan Raspler. The cover date is September to November of 1989. Basil Carlo, the original Clayface, has returned and is bringing together all the other villains who have gone by the name for a sinister new plan. What is Carlo's scheme, and how do the other Clayfaces factor in, and what does it mean for Batman? This is
1: Deep End for Clayfaces. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't done this bit in a while. Let's do some roleplay. Matt, how about you pitch this story to me?
0: Oh, all right, Alan Grant. So I'm going Scottish. <laughs> I don't know how Scottish he actually was. I think his accent was, but I'm going with this. <sighs> Stu, you know, there's a lot of villains who've gone by the name of Clayface. They just introduced the fourth one over in the Outsiders not too long ago. The lady one. <laughs> and Alan Moore. He, he wrote that story only a couple years back with their clayface that was created by Steve Englehart. And yeah, Matt Hagen, he was dead, dead in the crisis. And nobody's used Basil Carlos since he first appeared all those years ago. So, what would happen if he gets out of jail and suddenly you got all these clayfaces working together? I think my Scottish accent might have broke Will.
1: Uh, I'm broken. Oh, get the fuck out of my office! That's too many goddamn clay faces. What the fuck are you talking about? Get the fuck out! It's it's nineteen eighty fucking nine. We are not writing a story about four fucking clay faces. Get out! You're fired.
0: You know this was right before anarchy, so you know there was good stuff coming right down the pike. But yeah, this is a lot of clay faces, and I have to imagine. When I read this, I did not know any of these characters from from Adam, other than having probably read one of the other stories we're going to cover tonight in a an, an anthology trade. So it's a lot of clayface,
1: and it, it's it's too much clayface. I mean, it's less clayface than we got in um... shit. What is uh, what is that thing that's hanging out down at the bottom?
0: Oh, um chasing clay at 171 currently yeah because by that point clay faces three and four it had, had their kid and we introduced another clay thing who was called himself clay thing in that one as well
1: well at least the budding romance from uh this story does lead to something <laughs> it does they'll pop back up
0: during night Quest. uh one of the Azrael arcs will have the two of them as a couple I gotta say that's weirdly sweet? Sort of? Because Preston Payne, Clayface 3, is a seriously disturbed individual. And his Clayface powers are real fucked up. Yes. Most of these Clayfaces have not appeared since well before the New 52. And since the New 52, it's really only been Basil Carlo with all the Clayface powers. They've sort of moved away from there being, you know, seven clay faces. and are Thank now just, God. Yeah. And now it's just like, it's, it's Carlo. He's the only one we, we see anymore. And it's interesting because when you look at Batman, the animated series, they took the name Matt Hagen and the powers of Matt Hagen, but gave the actor stuff, which was Carlo's shtick. So it was sort of a hybridized clay face there.
1: And uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this tonight, but that that's the clay face you need moving forward. That like, that's the one that makes the most sense. It's the one that's got the most pathos. It's the one where you can kind of sympathize with him. It's the, the one where you can go places with the character. No offense, question mark to any of these stories, but feet of clay is leaps and bounds better than what we're reading tonight.
0: Yeah. Oh, it definitely is. And because Carlo, Carlo in this is, he's a fun character because he's such a ham. He is this stereotypical actor. If you've watched the Harley Quinn animated series, despite the powers, there is a bit of that over the top ham that you get in that clayface in Basil Carlo here, the way he monologues even in his thought balloons he's obviously monologuing
1: and let me let me see if i can sort of get a handle on what he is and what he does before he uh injects himself you know with the random mix of shit in the in the fourth book he's basically kind of good with like mission impossible style masks made of clay and uh a knife
0: yeah he was a, he was a murderer he was a, f- uh, a famous sort of silent movie, universal monster era movie monster guy. And when they were remaking the, his triumph and they didn't invite him back to play the monster again, he started killing people in the production and Batman caught him. It's a cool concept for a story, but he didn't need to be Clayface. He could have been anything it was just, they got, that was the name he gave because he wore the clay mask that's it
1: not all that impressive when we're talking about powers and abilities
0: compared to the others yeah because from there you go to Matt Hagan who was the full on metamorph to Preston Payne oh who- hold on
1: hold on let's let's rewind cuz you know the listeners out there might not have listened to uh, our episode featuring uh, Chase and Clay Hagan was an undersea diver <laughs> Treasure hunter and undersea diver, yes. Who who found this uh liquid that changed him into clay?
0: Yeah, and let him change shape and such. Then you've got Preston Payne, who suffered from a disease that made his features distorted, and so took a blood sample from Hagen and injected himself, and he, you know was able to morph his features, and then he started to sort of melt because he couldn't maintain the form. So he put himself in an exoskeleton that granted him superhuman strength and kept him in one piece. But also he has something that boils up inside him that makes him burn, and he has to touch others to pass that burning onto them.
1: And that basically melts them?
0: Yep. And finally, you have Sandra Fuller, Lady Clay, the fourth Clayface, who's experimented on by Cobra, the Cult of Cobra, and that gave her similar metamorph powers to Hagen, but also let her duplicate the powers of someone who she was duplicating. So she's just Hagen leveled up.
1: Uh, you guys got that at home, you good listeners out there. There's going to be a quiz at the end.
0: So what we get here is a story where Carlo has finally been released from jail. And Fuller had already reached out to him because she was tired of having to live as someone else. And he hatches a plan for revenge that also involves them breaking Preston Payne out of Arkham and then they go on a short rampage before they run afoul of Batman.
1: And Matt Hagen is along for the ride as just a dead little lump of clay.
0: Yeah, because he died in the Crisis on in Infinite Earth, killed by the Shadow Demons, and so Carlo had found his remains and tried to figure out, oh, we'll just put water in him and he'll come back, and no, he did not.
1: Mm, no, not quite. Sorry. Nope, he just became a glob. You know, it would be interesting. I know that there is there is this podcast out there. Uh, I think it's called Battle of the Atom. Totally separate, distinct concept. We got nothing to do with them. But I'd like to hear them discuss the differences between Mystique and uh, Lady Clayface here. Because that feels very much like a Mystique story. Like, I am tired of being other people. I just want to be me. I want to be accepted for being me. But again, Battle of the Atom, totally separate. It gives her a degree of pathos. I haven't
0: read a ton of The Outsiders. It's it's one of my gaps. So it's something we're going to get to someday. And I look forward to reading. Because I think I've found all the issues in dollar bins at this point. And so, I haven't read the first story where she is introduced. So, I don't know how she was presented in that story. But here it's like, oh, I kind of sympathize with that. You're a shapeshifter, but you don't want to have to shapeshift. You want to be able to just be you. But you don't feel any kind of sympathy for Carlo because he's a raving homicidal maniac. And I mean, you feel a degree of sympathy for pain because he's so so broken but he's also almost stereotypically crazy
1: yeah once you start killing people it's uh it's hard to maintain that sympathy
0: yeah and the whole you know oh he talks to a mannequin and he flies into these rages. he's a strange character and Again, he's had story, you know, he was created by Steve Englehart at the end of his run with Marshall Rogers, one of the legendary Batman runs. And then he was in a, a short by Alan Moore in an annual that is you know, well regarded. So he has this pedigree. But here it's just sort of like, oh, boy. I will say it's certainly a pretty story. That it is. Again, you know, Norm Brayfogle, he draws some great art. I mean, the, the way he does the, the metamorphosis for, you know, Lady Clay, she's changing forms is great. There's one panel where she has taken the identity of Batman and she's swinging in and he's got this maniacal smile on his face. And it's like, oh, oh, that's not Batman. That can't be Batman. Batman doesn't smile like that.
1: Uh Batman only smiles when he's riding uh, riding the venom train.
0: The cover to part 3 is striking. That's the the part that I remember seeing that at a comic shop cuz this would have come out like right before I started reading comics. Like these were a couple literally like three or four months before I bought my first issue of detective I remember seeing it as a back issue and needing to know what this spectral Jason Todd reaching out from the grave to Batman was all about.
1: It is a good looking cover. And uh, it's a good logo, too.
0: Yeah. This was a good hero for detective.
1: There are a lot of good ideas
0: in this story. I mean, I like Sandra, you know, wanting that acceptance. I like Basil Carlo's crazy plan for revenge. And I like him. I like the the ham supervillain actor there. But I think it's a lot in these four issues. And bringing in Looker of the Outsiders, because she was Lady Clay's nemesis. We don't get that much time with her. And you don't get a lot of explanation to who she is other than, oh, She's the psychic who was a member of the Outsiders,
1: and you get a little taste of her dialogue. Like everything's "uh, darling," whatnot. Yeah, a lot of dropped G's in the middle of the
0: word, in the middle of her sentences. You know, words that tra- you know have that
1: abbreviated sound. Feels I- like there should be a sugar in there somewhere. Yeah. I, uh, talking about story elements that you like, you you mentioned Jason Todd. I like Batman being both plagued by the clay Jason Todd, and then also knowing, okay, yeah, this is not really Jason Todd here, right? And then, but, it, I, but it's still really fucking with me,
0: right? Yes, that was the great. He's like, I know this isn't Jason, but having to punch Jason still is fucking awful. We do. We wind up doing this a bunch, and I often try not to, but. I think here, what would have fixed this story for you? Would it have been one less clayface? Would it have been really focusing on Carlo and having him individually encountering the other clayfaces, so it wasn't this big elaborate thing?
1: It's hard to say. I mean, the, the thought—the thought I had the most while reading this story: PR crisis management. If you're explaining, you're losing. In this story, if you're trying to set out and define all of these different clay faces, and this is the same problem we saw with five fifty. Five fifty was just basically exposition about all these clay faces. I think you just you can't do this story in the modern era. You just you have to do what we've done now: is just accept that your modern clay face is one clay face. And it's some kind of amalgamation of a lot of these ideas and characters. You know, this is certainly not the worst thing we've read, but it is so clunky. It's so unwieldy. I think you got to change this one at the like the at the idea stage, the inception. And maybe it is just focusing on Basil. Maybe we start with Basil in almost what the animated series would do. You just give the actor the Clayface powers at the beginning of the story and let him go from there.
0: At some point, we're going to ha- we'll get to the rebirth James Tiny and written annual that redefines Carlo. And we'll see how it feels where they give where basically it is. Yeah. Carlo just has Clayface powers out of the out of the gate. I like him as a character. I like that, that initial story. But I think we have now associate Clayface with shapeshifting and all of that. So him showing up as just a dude with a knife does seem underwhelming. And he's gone until No Man's Land. He pops up again the next time in No Man's Land. So he's gone for another decade. Maybe he pops up a little before that, but the next notable Basil Carlo story I can remember is Fruit of the Earth, which is an Ivy Clayface story, dead smack in the middle of No Man's Land.
1: Another interesting thing to read or see in this era, really before the animated series, is that we are both trying to define Clayface, and trying to give some kind of limitations and the earlier batman story we're going to read tonight like clayface can just the, the you know the matt hagan version of clayface can just do anything like he can fly he can turn into you know any mass he wants to he just has to refresh himself with the clay juice in certain hours and once again the animated series figures out it's it has to be mental you just can't you know, concentrate long enough. He can't think hard enough to to make that form. And you know, it's it solves so many of these puzzles. Like if Clayface could be a giant fire breathing dragon, why would he not just be a giant fire breathing dragon?
0: FYI just because I had to check. I was incorrect. He showed up a little before that, post cataclysm, pre no man's land, and then shows up again in no man's land. But yeah. You're absolutely right. He's God mode in that story. And here, that was sort of what Carlo was getting at. But then at least they had the bit where it's like, oh, okay, he gets all of the benefits of the clay faces, but he also gets their their detriment. So he gets Payne's burning touch, but he also has has to deal with the burning. And since he's amped up, the burning is amped up.
1: And he falls into the earth.
0: Yeah, the China Clay Syndrome is a title.
1: I like to imagine that he fell all the way to the core, and uh, he was absorbed into the core, and then the earth exploded.
0: We'll have to cover that that next story because it's it's him and freeze. So I was like, oh right, the it was I I believe Shadow of the Bat seventy five. I I didn't look at I just sort of like quickly looked at a bio of Bail Carlo and was like oh right I remember that story the triumphant return of the ultimate clayface and it was Alan Grant again because that was Shadow I'm trying to see if there's anything else here while it is awkward it's fun at least this story it doesn't sit and brood on anything. It's like, oh, we got another crazy set piece and we got another crazy thing. This could have been a lot more broody and instead it's it's much more Alan Grant writing wacky than it is him writing broody.
1: Yeah, there's not enough depth here to be broody. So uh, it's good that we just kind of zip along and have a good time and do some zany weird stuff. Like the man and the exoskeleton falling in love with the the lady, Clay, woman.
0: I think we've probably covered it.
1: That means it's time to put Detective Comics the mud pack on the big board. The big board
0: is currently at 180 stories. Number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Number 30 is Sleigh Ride, where the Joker takes Tim Drake on a Christmas ride around Gotham. Number 60 is My Beginning and My Probable End, a retelling of Bruce Wayne's earliest years with Leslie Tompkins.
1: And coming in at 69 is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight 201-203 Cold Case. Down at number 90 is The Sword of Azrael. At 120?
0: Is everyone loves Ivy from the Tom <laughs> King run? At 150 is Batman Holy Terror, which really deserves to be higher. And down at 180 is Batman White Knight. I am trying to come up with a, a... all right. Here's here's our first tent pole to, to work with here. Okay. Sisters in arms. The Grant Brayfogle story where Vicky Vale, Sarah Essen, and Catwoman wind up running across human traffickers. That's that's a
1: good opening bid. That's at one oh five. I was trying to figure out whether this would crack the top one hundred, and I mean, it does look good. It's not a slog like something like a super heavy at one oh one it doesn't feel like it commits any fundamental sins against the batman which is you know jim gordon in a mecha suit the art is better uh but the story is not as engaging as say injustice at 108 it's uh yeah again that's a really strong opening bid and when i say strong i feel like we're already in the right area yeah um
0: because down at 107 we've got blind justice which was that detective comics 598 to 600 which was at times a bit of a slog and you know introduced you know a potential love interest for bruce wayne who never really is fully formed and has multiple crazy science fiction ideas beyond the one gimme that you're supposed to get 104. Oh, here's an interesting. So 104 is The Misfits, which is another Alan Grant story. This one with Tim Sale art. And this has Catman, Killer Moth, Calendar Man, and Chancer. So it's another Grant writing a group of villains story. That's one that falls apart in the last part. Not terrible, not like completely apart, but has some problems with pacing because you don't get the moment where batman escapes the death trap you just sort of see the after effects and you suddenly get this last like two page like oh here's the origin of nimrod the hunter and chancer that why did we need to spend the last two pages of this book doing that You
1: yeah, know, you mentioned holy terror another thing we got to think about uh bumping up batman judge dread of 102 I don't think we can put this story above that because that is just such bonkers weird fun.
0: Yeah. I agree. I think we're we're in an area because I mean I wouldn't even put it above uh 103 Brotherhood of the Fist with, you know, the monkey cult. The 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 cult of monkey martial artists, because that was big and unwieldy, but a lot of fun and did not feel as overstuffed as this does.
1: Did that story have a brass monkey? Yes. Yes, it did. Brass there was a monkey. I'm thinking
0: between the misfits and sisters in arms. New Can 105? New 105. Sounds good to me. All right. Nice little pocket of Alan Grant there. Our second story of the night is The Great Joker Clayface Feud. This is Batman Volume 1, number 159. The writer is Bill Finger. Pencils by Sheldon Maldorf and Jim Rooney. Inks by Charles Paris. Colors by Helen Vesick, Letters by Stan Starkman and edited by Jack Schiff. The cover date is November of 1963. Matt Hagen has escaped jail and Clayface is on the loose again. But the press and the underworld are calling him Gotham's master criminal. and This has drawn the attention of the Joker wants
1: to prove he's still king of Gotham crime. Did you say as written by Bill Finger? Yes indeed. And what year again? 63. Man, that is a long time to write Batman.
0: That is an impressively long career. I mean, those the golden age creators, they started working and they worked until they couldn't work no more
1: for nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that too. This is a story that I first read in the greatest Joker stories ever told trade that came out around the time of 89, It, which is a fun, fun trade. I, I We've read other stories from that, and it's the other greatest Batman stories ever told that came out at the same time. Unsurprisingly, uh, like Five Way Revenge was in there, and... There's other stories that we'll get to. You know, Laughing Fish is in there. The Joker's Utility Belt, which inspired an episode of Batman 66. You know, the first Joker story, the origin of the Joker, where you find out he's the Red Hood. That's also in that book. But this is very Silver Age.
1: Oh, is it ever. The thing I always, you know, comes to mind when you read one of these stories, if you haven't picked up a Silver Age comic, Alexander. Right. If you're listening to this and you haven't read something from this era, it's a totally different way of making comics. Every panel is exposition. It's, I am doing this, and now I am doing this, and now we're going here, and now he is doing this. So I am doing this. Like these issues probably take, it feels like twice as long to read and process half the material. I look at this, I took more notes on these
0: 14 pages than I did on the last story, which, granted, we'll get to is is thin to begin with. But this is a lot of text. And I will say, I'm shocked that it wasn't on the cover. The, The splash page for this story has Clayface in the form of a gorilla lugging Batman and Joker, and this fits the Silver Age maxim that gorillas sell comics. I'm I'm gonna buy that. I would not argue. Batman fighting a gorilla? All about Batman fighting a gorilla.
1: And again, if Matt Hagen can be a gorilla, be a gorilla. At
0: one point in here, he turns into a giant flaming meteor. At, At what point... Have you, other than the the time limit, nothing should stop this guy. It's like Green Lantern. No. At least Green Lantern had the vulnerability to the color yellow and the 24-hour recharge. Here, he can do anything for 48 hours initially, and now it's less because he's using an artificial clay face formula.
1: Goo. Yeah, once you can create fire, once you can fly... And again, turn into a gorilla. I think at one point he's also a griffin, which is a nice touch. (laughs) He's a
0: giant eagle, which we also see Sandra do in the previous story. And at one point he's a mammoth. He turns into a woolly mammoth in the museum. Just again, for fun. He's theoretically unstoppable. You just have to sort of wait until his powers run away. Yet somehow Batman is able to deck him at the end of the story. If you're able to change like that, you clearly have to be changing your internal organs. So you're, you're just big old ball of mush. I don't know why punching him in the head is actually going to do anything. Comic book science. Yeah, the story demanded it. I do really enjoy the way Finger writes Joker here. We do see that Joker has all along, even from this point, been that egotist that he's got to be king of all he surveils and if he's not if somebody else has a bigger rep than him then it's go time because Joker's gonna have to take them down a peg
1: pay attention to me exactly the ultimate villain
0: yes and I like that the two of them at points you know Clayface does a Joker crime as Joker and Joker creates a crazy costume to mimic shape changing so he can prove that he can do a crime better than Clayface is a Clayface crime. It's two giant egos
1: screaming at each other. I'm going to have to uh, issue a correction here. Uh, Hagen does not turn into a griffin. Uh, He turns into a winged sphinx. Ah apologies i regret the error
0: this is also our first story that we've done with the golden slash early silver age batwoman and batgirl isn't it i do believe so so yeah this is your first time meeting kathy kane and betty kane
1: yes they are adorable
0: Yes, but they are very, very Silver Age.
1: Oh, Oh, indeed they are.
0: This is one of these moments where if your bride was on here, we would have had Abigail's feminist rant corner because not so much Batgirl, because she is obviously into Robin, but Robin is also obviously into her. But Kathy, Batwoman, it's very Lois Lane, let me throw myself at Batman in the same way Lois throws herself at Superman. And even, wouldn't it be better if we knew your secret identities too, Batman? Like, Batman's, like, gives us like, ooh, girls, cooties, sort of vibe in a couple places when it comes to the way she throws herself at him.
1: I, I will say, though, the last panel where you have that, I like Batman being intimidated. Oh ooh, ooh. My my utility belt is tingling. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Whoa, okay.
0: I also got to say, Gotham, you know, is giving Batwoman, you know, some accolades by naming a giant space rocket after her, which seemed like, okay, we just needed, we, we have a, a plot involving a rocket. How do we get them there? Ah, Batwoman, they're going to name the rocket after, they're going to dub her queen of space.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's the ticket may or may not have been built with nazi technology but uh, there are friends There are friends it's okay
0: yeah we we do have a uh, unfortunate bit of uncomfortable colonialism when the joker is
1: oh boy do doing, we ever
0: doing his crime in the museum of art and the the caption addresses it as quote primitive african art <sighs>
1: hey that's not good that that's that's not good at all i will uh recommend to the listeners you get you some of that uh, last week tonight goodness john oliver did a piece a couple of weeks ago on basically everything in the british museum being stolen being uh you know artifacts of colonialism and uh, obviously arguing that all of that stuff should be returned to countries of origin.
0: I I heard a podcast not too long ago where there was a discussion of, you know, some of those stolen artifacts from the point of view of the African nation that it had been stolen from and them going to all these museums worldwide and asking, Hey, can we get our stuff back? And the majority of them saying no.
1: Oh, but if we give your stuff back, then we might have to give everybody's stuff back and uh, shut up and do it all.
0: Right. And close yeah and the way they it was basically like we don't know if you would be able to take care of it it's theirs
1: yeah yeah fuck
0: you give them their stuff
1: back uh and this is this is covered in the oliver piece like if you can imagine the stuffiest whitest people in the world saying oh well we don't we don't know if you'd be able to take care of it properly like oh my god is that ever colonialism jesus fucking christ Unfortunately, alive and well, yeah, in the year 20, double deuce still. Anyway, Batwoman's queen of space, yes,
0: she is. There's a lot of her sort of being, you know, man crazy. It's very much, as I said, the lowest lane model, but she's also competent. She and Batgirl take down the Joker, he gets away, and they pull an audible. In the the whirly bats they were supposed to use to follow Clayface, assuming that it was Clayface pulling that robbery, and they catch him. You proved that you did something Batman and Robin couldn't. Take that, patriarchy! And
1: then Batman employs a little scheme to uh, <laughs> to trick everybody, including the readers. I I still can't figure out what the fuck happened at the end. Okay, well, one you've got the Batman robot. A Which Batman robot, yes. was
0: something very Silver Age. Superman had a fucking legion of Superman robots that he would regularly employ. So, you know, he could be Clark and the Superman robot would do the Superman thing so Lois would, you know, not realize that he was Superman. Even though Lois figured it out every third issue. And can you imagine the gaslighting? That version of Lois, there is no... Like, she should, if he ever came out and was like, yeah, I, I am Superman. So you've been lying to me for decades?
1: We are not fucking ever. Yeah.
0: At least, you know, in the modern continuity, it was, ne- you know, Superman never hinted that he had a secret identity, so Lois was never looking for it. So that's fine. But yeah, the fact that he would pathologically lie to her throughout the Silver Age is 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 not good. You've got an end that is parlor comedy with Batman impersonating Joker, the robot impersonating Batman, Clayface kidnapping them both, Batman covering the upper part of the robot's face in mud. So when Clayface lifted the mask, he's like, whoa, Batman can just punch him in the head and knock him out.
1: Uh, Batman as the Joker punching Clayface.
0: Yes, Batman as the Joker punching Clayface.
1: Uh, it's like, uh, the Benny Hill theme should be just going during this, this end of the book, like just wacky hijinks.
0: Add in Joker with a, a layered costume where it's like, oh, it's a regular, it's, it's an African idol. Oh, wait, no, it's hedgehog quills. Oh no, it's a dragonfly. This gets to that point where, you know, it's the supervillain doing these things. and You're kind of like, you know, you could sell that as a concept and make more money than you ever could doing super villainy it is one of the better looking early silver late golden age stories we've seen i think it's a really clean looking story i think there's some really nice panels in it there's one point where batman is going after the joker in the museum and he sort of Bounces off a series of drums to try to get it. The Joker versus it being a you know, just him running. It's a nice bit of choreography. I like the the designs of the Joker suits within suits, and it's really cool the various forms that Clayface takes.
1: And this is this is not an age where they really understood the concept, or maybe they just weren't fans of the concept of letting the art tell a story because it's so text. It's so exposition. You mentioned the, the sequence of Batman with the drums. That is one situation where there's at least a little hint of letting the art do the work because Batman, as he's progressing across the panel and progressing across the drums, he becomes more, in essence, filled in, right? The, the first drum, he's kind of an outline The second drum, it's darker. And then finally, on the third drum, he is traditionally colored as we've seen him throughout the whole issue. I like that as just this little baby step toward, hey, we don't have to say everything in the text.
0: We're getting to that point, but we're not there yet. I mean, 63 were the same year as the first appearance of a lot of the Marvel characters were still in that 61, 62, 63, the Stan at his chattiest. It's probably not until the late, very late 60s when things start with, you know, your Neil Adamses and your artists like that who took a lot more agency in the way they drew things. Jack Kirby was able to write his own comics and you'd think Kirby would have let the art do a lot of the talking and while he does in places he also can be tremendously verbose but then again we still see
1: that with writer artists today exactly because writing short is very difficult and not to get into the great artist writer debate but it takes skill and practice to be concise One of the biggest and like I I teach writing, one of the biggest problems my students have is using five words when one or two will do the job just fine. And artists who are not especially skilled in that work of pairing your stuff down. Yeah, they're going to load up those pages with text.
0: And this isn't even so much that this is, you know, to quote Grandpa Simpson, as well as the style at the time. Yeah. This was written for kids. This was written for, you know, we need to explain everything. I think they underestimated how smart kids are because kids are smart. Kids have a stronger constitution than we give them credit for when it comes to scary things. And a far more open mind when it comes to things that adults find offensive. Ah, indeed, indeed, indeed. I just, we had had very long discussions lately at my job about how we get these, we were doing a, a, you know, our holiday show and some schools didn't want to come because one of the actors is out and queer and it's like, you A, this is, it's in the British pantomime tradition, so drag is part of it. We've done these for decades and you've never... Been bothered by it, but the fact that, as opposed to it being, you know, a dame performance, the sort of over the top, or it's a queer actor who does drag professionally playing it straight, pardon the unintentional pun, that's offensive. Yes. The kids coming to Stumat would not have noticed, they would not have cared,
1: but it's their stick up their ass parents. <laughs> uh you can't race bait anymore in polite society you can't gay bait but goddammit if we are not in a time where you can trans bait and uh it's fucking offensive and i hope it passes really quickly but a lot of people are going to be hurt in the meantime
0: but as we are getting on to modern social issues while discussing a comic from 60 years ago yeah <laughs> That has nothing to do with what we are currently mourning in our present society.
1: I do believe that means it's time to Batman number 159 on the big board.
0: While this does have that one panel that is very uncomfortable and not at all good, This is still less offensive than Superman's Secret Kingdom, down at 162, where it was a whole lot of that across many, many panels as Superman takes over a small South American lost tribe. Uh, yeah.
1: There's a reason why that's down at 162.
0: Okay, so we've got Joker stories. Up at 141 is Joker's double jeopardy. That's okay. This is Joker versus Clayface. That's Joker versus Two-Face. I mean, I know this is definitely not better than 135. Luthor, you're driving me sane.
1: No, really just because Hagen is not as a character. He just doesn't play off of Joker the way that Luthor does. There's no there's no substance to Hagen here. He's got a whole bunch of powers and that's cool, but there's no there's no interesting character under all those powers.
0: I would say I enjoyed this more than I did 145, The Delta Connection, that Batman Swamp Thing team up in Brave and the Bold with Catwoman's appears this once and then goes away, sister. Yep. So so we're now in between 135 and 145.
1: Can't we do Holy Terror this one solid and not put one less thing above it for this one time? That's because the Holy Terror just needs to move. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what it
0: boils down to. I mean, I don't know how Holy Terror has wound up moving so much lower because Holy Terror should probably be very low triple, very high double digits.
1: I mean, it's better than Digital Justice, and Digital Justice is at 127.
0: Yeah. We, we can't re-rank this episode. We can't re-rank. Ah. Uh, uh, we can't.
1: But Fine.
0: We, we we're going to have to, because I don't know how Holy Terror is wound up where it, it did. It's always tricky doing Silver Age stories within this list, because they're almost intentionally fluff. They're almost intentionally trifles. So it's hard to place them in reference to things that aren't at all trifling.
1: But this is what we signed up for. It is.
0: 142. Grounded. The one-off where Batman, Bruce Wayne fights Batman, Terry McGinnis because Batman is mind-controlled. Like that more. Yep. But I think this could go in between that and Bouncing Baby Boy at 143. Yeah, I like that. Okay, the Great Joker Clayface feud. Our final story of the night is "Larceny, My Sweet." This is Batman Adventures Volume One, Number Eight. The writers Kelly Puckett, pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Scott Peterson. The cover date is May of '93. A mysterious man is robbing banks, breaking into the buildings and safes with his bare hands. While investigating, reporter Summer Gleason meets an equally mysterious, handsome man. As Batman investigates the bank robber, he finds a connection between the two men. This is a really cool concept for a story that is drastically underwritten because of the style of the book it is in. I feel like there was enough material in this as an idea to generate either multiple issues of one of these sparsely written Batman Adventures comics or a more solidly written comic that is aimed at the more traditional teens, 20s age group of the 90s. Because I like a lot of what's going on here. Batman struggling with this bank robber, Summer Gleason meeting this guy. There's a cool idea but none of it gets flushed out
1: enough no and you have animated series clayface matt hagan you you have him wanting to be human you have him wanting to live this normal life and to be just a guy who can go out on a date and i think that that's a very powerful element here that is missing largely in the other stories. And then you also have Batman at the end having a moment of grace saying, "Nope, the the guy you were looking for, you know, that, that idea, that, that romance, that picturesque thing you had in your brain. No, nah, he wasn't here, right? He doesn't ruin the idea that Gleason had in her mind. And, you know, Batman didn't have to do that. It was, it was a, it was a, a nice gesture on his part. and, yeah, as you said, this this is just a, a bit underwritten. This could be a longer arc that we could see in something like Detective. But it is what it is, what we have here.
0: It's fascinating to me because I remember this issue clearly. And I remember all of the elements of it. But in my own head, there was more to it. Probably because I, you know, I've I read it a few times because the The early Batman Adventures, that first volume, was for many years when I, you know, had easy access to my entire collection, kind of my comfort food comic. The, I've had a rough day, I just want to read something. Let me go back and read one of those Batman Adventures issues again, because they were just so fun and so well done and so much in the spirit of Batman the Animated Series. I'll even tell you, this issue came out the same day as the fourth part of Nightfall, where Croc and Bane fighting the sewers, or at least if they, I bought them the same time. I remember those buying those two comics the same day. Don't what know what
1: a uh, what a contrast there.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a moment also at the end where, when you know Clayface in full Clayface form is fighting Batman, and Summer walks around the corner and sees him and screams. Her look of horror is one thing, but his look of agony. That she screamed when she saw him. It's, it's enough to allow Batman to stun him. But, oh boy, you feel for Clayface there. The earliest Clayface stories in Batman the Animated Series, Feet of Clay and Mudslide, are really stories that give Clayface a lot of pathos. A little less so when you get later in the series, but here it's, it's very much this Clayface who is a tragic
1: monster. I don't think you could write the character any better than the animated series wrote him.
0: No, no. I mean, Tinian clearly took that Clayface as the inspiration for how he treated the character in uh, Detective very much in that struggling to be human again. And I don't know if anyone has ever talked to Tinyan about this particular element of his run. But Dr. Victoria October, who he introduced in his run, was introduced in uh some of the early of his tech, and who's the doctor who's trying to cure Clayface is a trans woman. And so I've always wondered about, you know, Clayface's struggle with his own form and his own shape and his own identity. And pairing that with a trans woman. I I mean it was there was lines about that in the book, but I would I would love to have seen tiny and tease that out more and i wish we'd seen more of dr october because she was a really cool character
1: probably something you're gonna have to fight editorial to do if i had to guess
0: i think probably but a little less so now i mean oh yeah of course alicia Yao is is back in batgirls so that probably makes alicia the most high-profile trans character in mainstream comics I mean, Marvel's been introducing a couple of characters over in the X-Books, but I can't think of any more high-profile trans characters than Alicia at this point. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'd love to be corrected on that one. I just can't think of anybody off the top of my head. But back to this actual story. I thought this, of the Batman Adventures issues we've covered so far this probably has my favorite art discounting the the tim drawn stuff i mean it's the same artist on this and batgirl day one and little red book but i really think of those this one just looks the best i think i love the design on both both of clayface's forms both the, the handsome guy and the hulking bank robber. I love the facial work he does with Summer. And the final panel with the rose that Summer found from Clayface's lapel that crumbles. While I'm sure that was probably in the script, the way it's drawn is lovely.
1: The art here is really strong. I'm, I'm a big fan of the inks and you know we've discussed batman 89 on the print column and it seems like a low bar to say that if you are adapting some other medium it should resemble that medium but not every book can clear that 89 was a good read but it is not a good read for how it you know mimics the style or the likenesses that you see in the Burton movies,
0: which is such an odd contrast, because Joe Quinones, who does the art, is a good artist and it's a good-looking comic. It's just not a comic that necessarily fits with the world it's supposed to be portraying. It's strange cognitive dissonance.
1: It is, and I look forward to covering the uh, the series here on the pod. We yes. really dig into that,
0: especially because you know we covered it as it came out, and there were big friggin' gaps. Oh, it be, yeah. It would be nice to read it in one sitting again and see how it feels that way.
1: Because, again, we're uh, uh, getting off topic, but that might have my favorite Two-Face ever. It was really strong.
0: Definitely hot, up there with your long Halloween Two-Face and your Batman the Animated Series Two-Face.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a totally different, take on it, but one that is strikingly relatable um, for any number of reasons. Ambition, complicated idea of uh, code switching, like just a fascinating take on the character. But anyway,
0: yes, specific fun reference. The title of this story is Larceny, My Sweet, which is a reference to Murder, My Sweet, the Philip Marlowe story by Raymond Chandler.
1: Ah, I had a minor point that I was going to bring up. Ah, does the last name Halm mean anything to you? H-A-L-M.
0: I do not believe so.
1: So I tried to do a Google search and didn't come up with anything, but it is very prominently on one of the nameplates in the bank.
0: Uh, Seems like
1: some type of Easter egg.
0: Or it could just be a friend of the letterer. Uh, Yeah. Often, if you can't find the reference somewhere else, it's probably the letterer's brother-in-law or something like that.
1: Hey, that's my name. It got a Yeah. One final note. I do like Mr. Invisible or the Invisible Man. His features aren't that defined. It's like... Clayface just didn't put a whole lot of thought into him. Maybe on purpose or just, he's just going to be a big guy and he's just going to smash stuff.
0: Hagen's an actor. This, he this character is, he's an extra. He's not a character that was, that had the presence. He's not a, he's not a leading man as opposed to the, the handsome one that he created that summer ran into. Also great touch on the cover. You might not have noticed it when you first saw, but once you've read the story, you see the shadows, and you see that the handsome guy on the cover is casting Clayface's shadow.
1: It's a cool trick when you do it on the cover. It's fucking stupid when you do it in every other panel of your book. Sean Gordon Murphy got nothing more there. Matt, we're gonna get big enough one day. We're gonna have millions of listeners. We're gonna invite. Sean, onto the show, and we're just going to ambush him. We're going to be like, Why are you so bad at what you do? Why are you
0: terrible? Why did you subject us to so many issues? <laughs> Why?
1: <laughs> oh, anywho, I think that means it's time with the Batman Adventures number eight on the big board. All right,
0: first bid. Batgirl Day One, first comic appearance of Harley Quinn, issue 12 of this series. Like this
1: more? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Where is that on the big board? 96. So, right around the middle. Ah, I was staring right at it. Yeah, I think it's better than that. I don't know if it goes up much higher from there, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think we're gonna put it above going sane yeah and i'd be hard pushed to put it above 88 that uh that dry run for injustice superman annual number three i think we could argue it goes right below that above fool's
0: errand the joker story the chuck dixon brian Selfrie's joker story at 89
1: hmm. oh yeah that was uh batman uh goes off and saves a girl yes and, uh, yeah yeah still the art just didn't speak to me in that one as I, usual if we had the the old choice of which one to reread i think i'd go for this one yeah i think that that's that's our spot and one day, we'll get into a big discussion of all of the various Batman Adventures titles and how there is a Batman Adventures and a The Batman Adventures. Yeah. And that will be a 45-minute discussion led by Matt. <laughs> Naming conventions in comics. Gotta love it. And one day, we got to get into uh, The Adventures Continue, which is the current series. Yes. Third volume just announced. You know what? Give
0: give us give us more of that. Give us more Bat Scoob, and uh, I'll be a happy camper. That looks like it does it for tonight. Next week, it is our annual Thanksgiving All Ages Batman episode
1: for the children. Well, I promise to cut back on my swears by at least seventy three percent. We we'll, we'll try, and I don't think we're going to do anything that will
0: send me into a into a rage enough to get me swearing. Actually, I think we got another Batman
1: Adventures next week. Got to be fun. You know it's bad when uh, when Matt swears. You've you've really screwed up. Rage. So
0: we'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. Jen, come Josh on. Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. <makes noise> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Bobby Two Bucks. Tim Rooney, Giorgio Seragioli, and Kyle Still for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at BatChatComics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the show on Patreon, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out
1: of here. Good night, Huntsville.
0: And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.